Now, I talk your mother tongue. So don't say I've got an accent, because you've got the accent. You know, there was a, a teacher once in a class, and she said, Why is English called your mother tongue? And one bright boy put his hand up, he said, Because father never gets a chance to speak it. <coughs> uh, English is your mother tongue, whether you like it or not. And uh, I've come to speak to your mother tongue. But I never come to America, and I've been here about 12 times already to the States, but I never stand up before a, an American audience without feeling I'm a poor little timid Englishman faced with this formidable group of tough, big, well-fed, hefty, uh, uh, strong, powerful, go-ahead Americans. And there was this guy, you know, in England, and his name was George, good English name, George, who... Familiar with George, George III? <coughs> well, he's George. Now, he had a very happy life except for one problem he had, and that was he had a mother-in-law. Anybody got mother-in-law as a problem? Uh, well, she was a real problem because she was one of those great big tough women, about six foot tall, very broad, uh, very aggressive. Nothing daunted her. The trouble with her was she never left them alone. She was always around. George got fed up with this. So he said to his wife, uh, Mary, I think we'll go and take a safari holiday in a Kenya wildlife park. She won't come there. So they made secret arrangements. I went off to Kenya. And uh, the mother-in-law got wind of it. When they got to Nairobi airport, there she was, waiting for them. A tent and a luggage. Poor George. And know what to do. So they went into the wildlife park and they camped down for the night. There was nothing they could do. They had their tent. She had hers. And they went to sleep. Early in the morning they were woken up with a snorting and stamping and roaring sound. And rushing out of the tent in their night clothes they found that mother-in-law had got up fully dressed with a walking stick and she was going for a walk in the bush and she was confronted by a great bull rhinoceros ready to charge. Well, what would you have done if you were the daughter? Well, she went hysterical. And she cried out and she said, George, 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 do something, do something, do something. At which George replied, I don't see why I should do anything. The rhinoceros has got himself in this predicament. He must get himself out. <laughs> well, now, whether you're the rhinoceros and I'm the mother-in-law or vice versa, I don't know. But I'm in this predicament that I've agreed to come and speak to you tonight. And I want to say I'm very grateful for the privilege of being able to address the various Calvary chapels I've been to and the pastor's conference. It's all been absolutely beautiful. If I could put the clock back about uh, 50 years, perhaps, or a little less, and start all over again, I, I think I'd like to come over here and be a pastor of a Calvary chapel. But I've been a minister for 43 years of Baptist churches in England, president of all sorts of things, and uh, I was trained, of course, at the finest college in the world, and you know what that is, not Harvard, uh, it's not uh, Stanford University, it's Spurgeon's College in London. Spurgeon was the greatest preacher England ever had, and he founded the college for pastors, and it's very evangelical, very sound, very biblical, and you can always tell a Spurgeon's man, but you can't tell him much. <clears throat> that was what I was like when I came out 
So it's been a great joy to be here, and I'm heading for home now to see my wife, whom I haven't seen for about a month. So praise God for this lovely time. Now, this evening, I want to share with you from the book of Isaiah, as we say. You say Isaiah, but then you're always different in the way you say things. Isaiah, and I want you to turn to the 43rd chapter, chapter 43, and uh, I want to start with the verse there. Isaiah chapter 43, verse 9, 19, or 18. Do not call to mind the former things, or ponder things of the past. Behold, I will do something new. Now it will spring forth. Do you not, are you not aware of it? Or will you not be aware of it? I will even make a roadway or a way in the wilderness and rivers in the desert. And then in chapter 44, verse 3, For I will pour out water on the thirsty land and streams on the dry ground. I will pour out my spirit on your offspring and my blessing on your descendants. Now I want to speak this evening to you about the new thing that God is doing and wanting to do. Because I believe that God is a God of renewal or a God of revival, whichever word you like. And I know this is so because last um, January and February my wife and I were in Florida. I was preaching there at churches. And while we were away, the temperature in our garden at home fell to 15 degrees below zero. And it stayed there. And when we got home, we find the whole garden looked as though it was completely dead. And I looked at it and I thought, it'll never, never flourish again. But a few weeks went by and the temperature changed and everywhere the buds began to come out and the, and the, and the, and the bulbs began to bloom, the birds began to sing and the whole garden became new within a short time. And I realized that God was that sort of God. He was the God who renewed nature. And of course, last night I went to bed very tired, as perhaps you did, I don't know. And this morning I woke up as fresh as a daisy, as we say in England. Because God renews us when we sleep, renews our bodies. And the God who can renew nature and can renew our bodies is the God who wants to renew us spiritually. And he wants to renew his church. And I praise the Lord that he's privileged me to still to live in a day of renewal. We're seeing quite a lot of renewal in England. Churches that I knew that were dead are now coming alive. Churches that were empty are filling. And many of us are experiencing this wonderful blessing of spiritual renewal. Now, what did it mean here for these people? When God said, 19, I will do a new thing. And he talks about the former things and the old things. But he's going to do a new thing. Well, the first thing he's going to do is this. He's going to give these people a new experience of their redemption, of their salvation. And I'll tell you why. They had a special name. 
not just Jews or Israelis. They were called the ransomed of the Lord. As they like to call themselves that, the ransomed of the Lord. Just like in East Africa, uh, people who are really converted in Uganda are called balokali, which means the saved ones. So if you're a real Christian, you're called a saved one. Well, they had that name. We are the redeemed ones. And we re we're called by that name because long ago, God redeemed us from the slavery of Egypt. And we've been the redeemed people ever since. But the uh, problem was, they weren't living in redemption. They remembered it. Remembered it every year when they had their Passover. Remember the lamb that was killed and the blood put on the doorposts and how God brought them out at the Etsy unleavened bread. They, they remembered their redemption. But they were in captivity in Babylon. They were under a cruel oppression, crueler perhaps even than Egypt had been. And here they were languishing in Babylon. They couldn't even sing the songs of Zion. They hung their harps on the willows because they were the redeemed of the Lord. But they weren't living in the experience of their redemption. So God said, I'm going to do a new thing. I'm going to give you a renewal of your experience of redemption. Now, how's it going to happen? Well, for 70 years it seemed impossible. Who could break the power of Babylon? Nobody. It was the, the greatest military power that had ever been. It was impregnable. And there was no one around that could deal with Babylon. And they were in the grip of this tyranny. God said, I'm going to do a new thing. And all of a sudden, there was a petty governor or province in the northeast of Babylon who revolted. Well, there had been revolts before. And the Babylonian kings had just crushed them like that. But not this one. Strange enough, he won victory after victory until he had a whole great province and then a great area of media. And then in 538 B.C., that was before I was born, uh, 538 B.C., he said I was a bit old, um, he won a, a, a smashing victory over the Babylonians and overthrew that mighty empire and he became the first king of Persia. His name was Cyrus. Cyrus, and you see mentioned here in this book and in this very chapter, if you look back, you'll see God is saying this in verse 14. I have sent to Babylon and I will bring them all down as fugitives, even the Chaldeans, into the ships in which they rejoice. God said, I'm going to break the power of Babylon. And uh, this section of Isaiah from chapter 40 onwards, as you well know, if you know your Bibles, is the great chapter of the new thing that God's doing. When the people are going to be delivered, chapter 40 begins, comfort ye, comfort ye, my people. God is going to break the power of Babylon. And he does it through Cyrus. You find Cyrus is mentioned several times here with great... Uh, Great terms that are used about Cyrus. He's God's anointed one. He's God's chosen one. He's the one that God's raised up and given victory after victory. He is the great deliverer. Now, that's all right. He broke the power of Babylon. But what about the Jews? What about the ransomed of the Lord? What's going to happen to them? Are they going to come under a new dictatorship? Oh, no. 
first thing that Cyrus does, to the surprise of everybody, is he issues an edict in the first year of his reign that all the Jews are to be set free and they're to go back to rebuild their city and their temple. What a wonderful thing. Two things that Cyrus does. He breaks the power of the oppressor and he commands the oppressed to go free. And this is the new thing that God does. Now, this is what Jesus has done. We don't need a new Messiah. Plenty of them around. And I find that as I, every time I come to America there's some new thing that people are going after. It seems that these days I've suddenly discovered a thing called the New Age. I never heard of it. I thought we were in the old one still. But, you know, there's a new age and new messiahs are coming. And we don't need new messiahs. We have got the Messiah, the Son of God. And he has broken the power of Satan. Here are scriptures I can quote. In Colossians 2.15 it says that he stripped off the principalities and the powers triumphing over them in his cross and he made a show of them openly that's what Jesus did when he died he didn't just atone for our sins but by doing that he took away Satan's power Satan's ground of control and it says he stripped off the principalities and powers he put Satan on the run when Jesus died and rose again and he's been on the run ever since and then in Ephesians chapter 1.20 it says that he's, he's exalted and raised far above principalities and powers and every name that's named. Jesus is Lord. Hallelujah. He has broken the power of Satan. But whether you really know that in your own life is another matter. You can go around saying I am the redeemed of the Lord. I'm a Christian. I'm saved. And you can be under the power of Satan. But what Jesus has done is this. He's made deliverance possible. There is an edict of the Almighty, as it were, that whosoever believeth in him shall not perish but have everlasting life, and that sin shall not have dominion over you. You're not under law but under grace. And there is deliverance through the power of the blood of Jesus. You can be free from the guilt of sin. And so this new thing, renewal, is God making Jesus real to us again. And we need another Jesus revolution. There was one in 1971, and I was here when it happened in California. And it was beautiful to see kids everywhere, thousands of them, right up and down California, talking about Jesus, having the name of Jesus on their T-shirts and on their stickers, and knowing the power of Jesus to set them free. There was one school in Al Cajon, near down in the south uh, that I, I, I was at and, and met kids there. Three quarters of that school had been saved and they were expecting the whole school to be saved. And it was Jesus who was doing it. They weren't emphasizing anything else but Jesus. And we need to see that Jesus is a wonderful savior and that he can deliver from, from sin. Now, for years... As a minister, I lost that. I'd been saved when I was a kid, and I'd grown up, and I'd been baptized, and I was in the church, and I taught Sunday school, and studied my Bible, and all these things. Then I went to college, and I trained, and I became a minister, and I got all caught up in the 
mechanics of the ministry, you know, organizing this and arranging that and preaching and teaching and going on. And I lost the reality of Jesus. And while I was there as a minister in a big church, as big as this building, with seating a thousand people, it didn't have a thousand, but it seated a thousand anyway. Uh, but we had pretty full anyway. But as I was there in this big and famous church, uh, as a teacher and a pastor and a preacher, I was so defeated inside. Defeated by ill temper, irritability at home, jealousy, criticism, all sorts of things. And somehow, Jesus wasn't real to me. I preached about him, I taught about him, but I wasn't knowing his delivering power in my life. It was about the year 1950 that something happened to me whereby I began to realize Jesus afresh. I met some African brethren, the Ugandans, and some of them from Central Africa. And they were some of these saved ones that had been saved in the revival out there. And I met them in England and their faces shone. And they kept talking about Jesus. It was what Jesus had done for them. Even that day. And I suddenly realized that they were walking with Jesus and experiencing the power of Jesus in a way I wasn't. And it brought a great sense of need into my heart. And I began to find that I needed to rediscover Jesus. Maybe some of you do as well. In this very book, in chapter 52, I think it is, in the New International Version, it says about these people, it says, My people at first came out of Egypt, but lately Assyria has been afflicting them. That's good. They came out of Egypt, but lately Assyria has been afflicting them. And I may be addressing you tonight, and you came out of Egypt once, you were converted, you were born again, but lately Assyria has been afflicting you. There's been sin in your life that's been mastering you and getting hold of you. Satan's been getting you in his grip. And you are the redeemed of the Lord. But you're not really free. You're not walking with Jesus in the light of his saving power today. These Ugandans, they said to me, are you saved? And I said, of course I'm saved. What do you think I'm doing in this pulpit if I'm not saved? I said, well, yes, tell us about you being saved. Well, I said, I was saved when I was 14. Oh, they said, praise the Lord. But what about today? Have you been saved today? I said, well, I don't know what you're talking about. Oh, they said, well, Jesus has been saving us today. And one of them said, well, he saved me from losing my temper this morning and I repented and he cleansed me and I'm just praising him. And somebody else said, well, he saved me from doubts and fears and he saved me from something else. And I've never heard Christians talking like this. It was a new thing to me. They believed in, in Jesus saving them every day. And I didn't. I went for days. Defeated by all sorts of things. Not knowing what Jesus could be in the now. And I discovered that revival, renewal, was walking and living with Jesus in the now. Not in the past, but in the now. Well, that's it. I'll just tell you this little story. I've, read the, I've just read a book about a, a vicar, that's an Episcopal minister in England, who lived at about the time of the Wesleys. 
And he was one of these dry, very uh, high churches, we call, very ritualistic ministers. Dressed himself up, you know, and did all the performances. And uh, then he preached. But there was a whole group of people in his church praying for him. Uh, really praying that he'd get converted. Because he wasn't really. He believed all the doctrines, but he didn't know the power of Jesus. <laughs> Do you know what happened? This little, little bunch of the people were praying for him all the time. And one day in his pulpit in Cornwall, as he was preaching, the Holy Spirit suddenly showed him what he was preaching about, what it meant. <laughs> he was sort of preaching at the top of his head or out of a book. But he was preaching about Jesus and his death on the cross and the resurrection. And all of a sudden he realized that Jesus had died for him and his sins and Jesus had risen again and the glory of it filled his soul. And his face changed and he began to preach in a different manner and they all sat there amazed wondering what had happened to him. <laughs> and all of a sudden one of the guys gets up and he shouts aloud and he says, The parson's been converted! Just imagine what happened. Converted under his own sermon. <laughs> but you see what had happened. He'd come into a reality of Jesus there and then. And from that moment his life was changed and his ministry was changed. His name was William Hallam. And he became one of the great evangelists of Cornwall at that time. And everywhere he went people were saved. Because he was always living with Jesus and his biography talks about every day he was proving Jesus, meeting Jesus so he could preach out of real experience. Now, could you? And I believe that's why we don't talk about Jesus very often in the streets to people because we're not living with him in the now. Well, now, look at the next thing God says I'll do. Verse 19. I will make a way in the wilderness. Now, what is this way? Well, Cyrus is coming and he's going to overthrow Babylon and he's going to issue an edict of emancipation and all the Jews can go where? They can go back to Jerusalem. And the way that God is going to make for them is a way back to the place they've left. Now, whether it's actually literal here or whether it's spiritual, I don't know. It may be a spiritual thing. What God is saying, I'm going to give you a spirit, a desire to go back to the place from which you've come. They had come, of course, because of their sins. Now they're going to go back in repentance. Now I thought that in the Christian life was always I had to go on and go on and go on. I had to go on from one phase of the spiritual experience to the next. To me it was being baptized, joining the church, starting teaching Sunday school, serving the Lord, working here, witnessing there, standing up in a meeting, consecrating my life to Christ, uh, getting to know more and more of the Bible, going on and on and on. Romans 6, be crucified with Christ, risen with Christ, seated in the heavenly places. I don't know where I went there, in heaven I suppose. But you always went on. Never went back. And what God said to me one day, you've got to go back. Back where? Back to Jesus. Back to Calvary. Because I was so busy going on that I've lost Jesus. 
they lost Jesus. Yes, I've just told you how they lost Jesus. They lost the reality of Jesus and his, his sweetness and his power and his grace and his salvation in my life. Because I'm going on so fast. I'm a fast mover. I'd like to get, get going, you know. God says, you've got to go back. And then it was, I said, I've got to go back to Calvary. Because I, I've evaded Calvary. Oh, I believe in Pentecost, the fullness of the Spirit. I've got to go back to Calvary. There is a group in England, very charismatic. I don't say that critically because I'm charismatic, I suppose. They label me such. But this group is a very powerful group, about 120 of them, with a very strong, one of our strongest charismatic leaders in England. And God had done wonderful things in their midst. And they had this great community living in Sussex. And uh, great things were happening there, and they were sending out teams and ministries and literature, and I don't know what, you know. And they thought, now we are a stream of revival for England. Okay. And all of a sudden, everything went dead. Went dead slowly, but one day they woke up to find it was all dead. Nothing was happening. They got stuck. And so they said, well, what's happened? We better give a, a weekend of fasting and prayer to ask God to show us what's wrong. Why are we stuck? And as they prayed and fasted that weekend, the Holy Spirit showed them all kinds of things that were wrong in their midst. Like roots of weeds growing underground, they hadn't recognized them. There were jealousies and bitterness and criticisms and misunderstandings and all kinds of hurts and all kinds of things. And they were down at the cross repenting. And then the Holy Spirit came in and revived them all. And the leader wrote this. We thought that we were going to bring revival to England through Pentecost. And God showed us we needed to go back to Calvary. That's what God showed me. Because there was I, you see, in this, in this church, not really knowing the, the beauty and glory of Jesus in my life, Preaching, teaching, baptizing, building the church up, going and speaking at conferences and conventions, never repenting about anything. See, repentance didn't come into my way of thinking. Everything else. Because I've been brought up amongst very biblical Christians who taught everything from Genesis to Revelation except repentance of Christians. Christians weren't supposed to repent. They're supposed to have done all their repenting when they became Christians. They left it behind. So I never repented of anything. I never repented to my wife. Never repented to anybody in the church. I didn't think I needed repentance. And then one of these Africans spoke to me. He said, Stanley, do you want revival in your church? I said, oh yes. I'm longing for revival in the church. I said, he said, what do you want? To, how do you want it to start? I said, I wish the people in the church would repent. So many things wrong in the church, they don't repent. He looked at me and he said, what about you? Do you repent? And I didn't like that. <laughs> so he wanted to repent out in the public houses. That's the, you know, where the people drink. One repentance in the pews where the people sit you don't want repentance in the pulpit you don't think you need that and he said revival will begin in your church and he put his finger in my chest 
when you start repenting of your sins as the minister of this church. And I didn't like that one little bit. I was mad at him. But God was very gracious that week. He began to convict all sorts of people in the church. And here was I preaching great doctrines, oh, I, everything I taught, you know. I went through Revelation, I went through all the great doctrines, teaching this church, pouring all this complicated theology onto them, you know. And this man gets up in a meeting and he says, in Africa, God's shown us that when you point the finger of criticism at somebody else, there's three fingers on the same hand pointing back at you. And I thought, well, that's not very profound. But it was because there were six guys in the congregation who were absolutely convicted to the heart by that simple illustration because they had been very critical and during the next couple of days they called me on the phone they came to my front door and knocked broken down in conviction of sin asking my forgiveness because they'd been talking about me behind my back and running a kind of rebellion campaign against the minister and about other people and the elders and so on and God was just breaking them down and as they came to me I saw I was just as bad as they were. God said, you're just as big a critic as anybody. Everybody's wrong except you. You think you're better than everybody else. You're just stinking with pride. God broke me down at the foot of the cross and I began to repent. And the first thing I began to repent about was having a critical spirit. And instead of counselling these guys and being the big minister saying, oh, thank you, brother, I'm so glad you're repenting, brother, I'll bless you, not a bit of it. I had to come and kneel down beside them and say, brother, I'm just as bad as you are, I need to come to the cross too. But you know, God is wonderful. When you start to repent of one thing, it's like setting off Chinese crackers. You know Chinese crackers? You light one little cracker and it sets all the others going. And you never know where it's going to end. And repentance is like that and it wasn't long before God was showing me something else and something else and something else and by the end of that week my word I was going up in fireworks and flames <laughs> I praise the Lord for it because it was the change you see I, I, I found the way in the wilderness I was in a wilderness I didn't know how to get out of it I was striving after this doctrine and that truth and that blessing and God's saying, but you've got to go back to Calvary, mate. You've got to go back to Calvary. That's where it comes from. And I found myself there. I remember the first day I repented to my wife. I didn't go into the details. I told the ministers at the conference they could ask the pastor. It's about a washing machine. They overflowed. And I was very nasty to her. I often was high-handed and lofty. And she gave me a bit of her mind. And the Lord broke me, showed me I needed to just go and say sorry to her. And we've been doing that ever since. And the marriage is just beautiful. I remember the first time I had to go and say sorry to one of my children because I'd been overbearing and harsh with him. And he hated me. Hated me because of my attitude. And I realized I was wrong. I had to go and say, son, I'm sorry, forgive me. And he repented. What a change. 
I remember that morning I had to get up before the congregation and say to them, God has been dealing with me this week about my sins as a minister. Some of them were shocked. They said, the bishop must be blameless. We don't want a minister who has God dealing with him about his sins. He shouldn't have any. <laughs> didn't like it. Because they never repented. They didn't like me repenting. But I said, God's been dealing with me about my sins and I want to ask you forgiveness for the harsh way I've often preached at you and the way I've criticized many of you. And people began to weep in the congregation. And I praise the Lord for that because it was a way. It was a way. God said, now are you going to walk this way? Are you going to walk repenting of every sin I ever show you? Whatever that sin is, however ordinary it is, however little it is, however deep it is. And I had to make the decision, Lord, I will walk that way. Ah, but people will misunderstand you. Yeah, it doesn't matter. They'll say you're introspective. doesn't matter. They say you're negative. doesn't matter. Oh, I find it a, a joyful way. Because it's always back to Jesus. And you're going to deal with Joel. The central word of Joel is in the, about the middle of chapter 2. And it says, Return unto me, says the Lord. Return unto me. Rend your hearts and not your garments. And return unto me. And he's saying that to his people. Not the outsiders. And this word return and turn, which comes again and again in the prophets and the Psalms, return is the great word for repentance. Go back. Go back from where you've fallen. Go back to Jesus. Go back to that first love that you've left. Go back to that first joy that you had. Go back to the cross where the healing streams, the blood of Jesus flows to cleanse from sin. Go back. And I love to go back to Calvary because that's where life comes. I want to say this, that repentance isn't just towards God. It's got to be towards people. When I, when I turn to the Lord, I turn towards Him and there's repentance in my heart. I may not realize what sin there is, but I say, Lord, if there's anything, forgive me and I know this, that you're convicting me of, I ask you to forgive me and cleanse me, and I turn to the Lord. Then I have to turn to people. He says, I will turn the hearts of the fathers to the children, and I will turn the hearts of the children to the fathers. And if your brother hath aught against you, go first to me, reconcile to your brother. You have to be turning to one another. And if there's somebody tonight you need to go and repent to, Husband, when last did you repent to your wife about anything? Is there nothing you ever need to say sorry about? Wife, what about you and your husband? Is there nothing you ever need to say sorry about? And do you not realize that when we don't repent and turn to one another, a little rift comes between us and it's there and it may get wider? But when we turn to one another and we turn to the Lord, the blood of Jesus cleanses, as you've seen from 1 John and there's fellowship with one another as you walk in the light. Praise God. Praise God for this way of repentance. May I just say the third thing? He says, I'll give waters in the wilderness. I'll give waters in the wilderness too. 
He says, as you walk along this way of repentance, I'm going, I'm going to release my Holy Spirit. I think this is metaphorical because, you see, in the next chapter, in verse 3, he said, I will pour out water on the thirsty land, streams on the dry ground. I will pour out my Spirit on your offspring and my blessing on your descendants. He's talking about the Holy Spirit here. The great picture of the Spirit in the Scripture is it is water, living water. What a difference water makes. Here's land that's dry and thirsty, nothing grows, there's been no rain for five years, ten years, it's all desert. You think nothing's going to grow, and then the rain comes, the waters come, and flowers begin to bloom almost instantly. What a change. I find that my life could be very dry. Even repentance could become mechanical. You just go through the motion and say, I'm sorry, Lord, forgive me. Go to other people and say, I, I want to put this right or that right, forgive me. And it can become mechanical and dry. But oh, I found this. When you really go to Calvary and you really know the cleansing of the blood of Jesus, there comes within you a great thirst and a longing for the Lord. And God answers that. For he says, if any man thirst, let him come to me and drink. And we need the balance of these things. We need the cleansing of the blood and the drinking of the Spirit. Two things together. The brokenness and the repentance, but the fullness of the Holy Spirit as well. That's the positive side. And I found there were days when I sought the Lord earnestly. There was repentance, yes. There was seeking of Jesus. There was this longing in the heart for God's living presence within. Oh, what a blessing when he's answered. When the heart is so filled with love that you don't know what to do with yourself. When the Holy Spirit fills you and you want to just praise the Lord in an unknown language. And you can't stop. When you love the Lord. When you want to worship the Lord. When the Holy Spirit fills you as you, as you witness, as you speak. And you know that the living water is flowing. There's no dryness there anymore. There's freshness. There's a fountain springing up into everlasting life. That is what God wants for you. That's what God wants for you. Can you see these three things? He doesn't want you to stay in bondage. He doesn't want you to stay in that faraway place. He doesn't want you to stay dry and empty. He wants you to know the living, delivering power of Jesus in your life. He wants you to know that deep heart repentance toward God about sin and returning to him and then he wants you to know the release of the Holy Spirit in your life it's his promise the promise of the Father I will pour out my spirit upon all flesh and that's what God wants to do today that's the basic thing and it's no good having a lot of the other things that are the the, the, the layers the, 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 the extra things if you haven't got this basic thing all the time. But when you've got that, God will give you everything else and it'll be wonderful. Hallelujah. Praise God. Let's pray. Thank you, Jesus that you are the conquering Lord. Thank you, Lord, that you've overthrown the Babylon of Satan 
and sin and hell. By your death on Calvary and your descent into hell itself and your resurrection in glory, you have dealt a mortal blow. Thank you, Lord Jesus, that your first act is to make available deliverance for captives through your blood. We need not be under guilt and fear and the bondage of sin because you can be our daily saviour. Thank you, Lord, that you call us back to Calvary to come to the cross in repentance. Thank you, Lord, that there you make the living waters of the Holy Spirit available to us. Thank you for this cycle, this paradox, that we must both die and live, we must repent and we can be filled, and then repent and be filled, and that this is the ongoing way. Lord, may we all know it. Now may I ask you, as we pray together, I know God has been speaking tonight and he's been speaking to you hasn't he and if God has spoken to you tonight about your need of repentance you're a Christian you haven't been repenting lately maybe you never do repent properly to God or to people God has said to you tonight there is a need for you Go back. Go back to Calvary. Go back to your first love. Go back to your new ex first experience of Jesus. Go back to some brother or sister whom you've hurt or to whom you need to repent. You need to go back. And if you want to tell God this evening, Lord, I will repent. And I want to walk the way of repentance as you show me. Would you like to stand up in your seat now? just where you are and just tell the Lord Lord I'm willing to walk this way of repentance God will bless you praise God there are many of you who feel this don't stand because others are standing don't stand just because I say stand you stand because God is making you stand and you want to ask the Lord to give you a penitent heart always a heart that's sprinkled with the blood, a broken and a contrite heart that will repent. Any others? Some of you tonight, too, you feel you're in the bondage of sin. You've lost the reality of Jesus. You can say, yes, I was saved years ago, but I, I'm not proving his salvation day by day. And you want to come to Jesus afresh tonight that he may be your daily saviour. Would you like to stand as well? Praise God. Some of you never come to Christ at all yet. You're here and you, 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 you don't know Jesus as your saviour and Lord. And tonight you'd like to ask him to come into your life. For the first time, would you like to stand? Would you like to stand?
Jesus died for you on Calvary. He wants to save you. He says, come unto me. Just come now and stand up to show you want to come to Christ. Praise God. Perhaps those of you standing for this who would like to come forward afterwards and just see uh, the pastor and others. And let them help you to know how to come to Christ. Now some of you and you have been praying about the filling of the Spirit. God can fill you tonight if you lift your heart to Him. You'd like to stand. You want the Holy Spirit to fill you. Anybody? Lord, thank you, dear. God bless you. Praise God. Praise God. Standing won't fill you, but standing will be your sign to God. You want to lift the empty vessel of your heart that he might fill you. Well, God bless you all. I'm going to just stand with you now and pray, not for you, but with you. Oh, dear Father, we thank you that you are so merciful. Thank you that you answer our prayer. Thank you, Lord, there is repentance and there is cleansing. We cannot be nearer to you and more right with you, Lord, than at the moment when we repent of sin and the blood of Jesus cleanses us. Thank you for this, Lord, for this sweet, sweet place when we stand at Calvary and we know the cleansing blood Thank you, Lord. Thank you for Jesus, who is so real, the living Christ, to deliver us day by day from the things that so easily beset us. Lord Jesus, thank you that you will deliver us this evening and tomorrow and the next day as we turn to you. You are our great Cyrus, Sin need not have dominion over us. We can be free from its guilt and its power. Thank you for the Holy Spirit, Lord. May we know the glorious fullness. Even now as we stand, that fountain is rising up within us to praise and glorify you. Thank you, Lord.